Fualsha, 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 Akharjagil, and welcome to episode 96 of the Rebel Matters podcast. I'm recording this episode on Thursday, the 29th of April, which is the day before the episode is due to come out, which is a good bit later than we're used to these days. Normally, we have the episodes done and dusted at least a week in advance and sometimes more. But it's been a bit of an up and down two weeks, and I was having to think about what would be a good episode to put out today. I was also considering taking a little bit of a break from the podcast this week. But between the jigs and the reels, I decided to sit down and record a half solo run episode and half interview episode in memory and in honour of my very good friend Salah Ajarma who passed away just over two weeks ago very suddenly in his family home in the Ida refugee camp in Palestine. The last couple of weeks really have been a bit of a ball buster and I'm sure that a lot of you can relate to the way that uh, the pandemic and the whole lockdown situation can kind of just all of a sudden get on top of you whenever a few things uh, happen around about the same time. On the 14th of April I was up in Belfast because it was our mum's first birthday since we lost her to suicide on the 29th of September last year and the minute that I woke up and got out of bed and had a look at my phone the news came through that Salah had passed away suddenly earlier that morning which was a massive shock for all of his family, his friends and the comrades that he has all around the world. It was... A pretty emotional day that day we went to the botanic gardens a few of us for a wee picnic to celebrate our mum's birthday it was a nice day up in Belfast uh, in terms of the weather and then I was also just trying to come to terms with what had happened to Salah and having a chat with the other members of the wee group of six of us that went over to the Ida refugee camp in February 2020 to get the Ackley Palestine gym set up. If you're a regular listener to the podcast, you might already be aware that the Ackley Palestine gym was, it's kind of a long-term project that I have been involved in since 2018 and ever since then I've been working very closely with Salah to get that project on to its next stage, whatever that stage was at any given time over the course of the last three years. Salah was the founder, one of the founders and the director of the Laji Centre, which is the community centre that the Ackley Palestine Gym is based in and the Laji Centre is in the Ida refugee camp, home to more than five and a half thousand Palestinian refugees in Bethlehem, surrounded on all sides by the apartheid wall and Israeli army watchtowers. I've been thinking about Salah every day since the 14th of April and just going back through the memory bank, recalling the last time that we met each other, the last time that we spoke, and the impact that Salah had on me personally and the friendship that we had developed over the last three years. The last time that we were in contact with each other was actually on St. Patrick's Day this year, 
because it was three years to the day since we first met each other in the Ladji Centre, which was on St Patrick's Day 2018. And since then, we developed a really good friendship through, I suppose, through the work that we were doing together for the Ackley Palestine Gym. Salah was in Ireland at the beginning of December 2019, and he called down to Cork for a catch-up and gave a talk in the back room of our training facility in Cork to a fairly packed out room and it was actually a pretty emotional event because it was the first time Salah had come to visit the gym in Cork and he was telling us just about life in the camp and the type of work that he was currently involved in and telling us about the Ladji Centre as well and people were asking questions. I suppose it was an emotional event for me because not only was Salah in Ackley in Cork but sitting in the audience there were loads of people who had helped us raise the money for the Ackley Palestine Gym over the course of the year and a half or so before that. People who had volunteered at the Gym Jam Roisin Nikarhi was sitting there who worked really hard during the gym jam to uh, make food and keep people fed during that lovely wee fundraising event that we had in July 2019 about six months before Salah had come to visit the place in Cork and a few of the lads from Nudan, the Waterford based trad band were playing a few tunes as well and they had also played for us at the gym jam and really helped to um, get the fundraising over the line for us so I was asked to say a few words and I hadn't actually banked on saying anything I suppose I knew I was going to do a little introduction for Salah but it got pretty overwhelming when I was standing there and uh, Salah was standing beside me and I could see all of the faces there that uh, were sitting in the audience that had helped us so much and kind of trusted in the project that we were undertaking. So it was a really nice event. And the chat that I have here for you after this bit of a solo run is a conversation that I recorded with Salah earlier in the day before we started the the kind of talk event that he gave later on in the evening. During the chat that we recorded earlier in the day, Salah gives an insight into what life is like in a Palestinian refugee camp and also talks a little bit about the Ackley Palestine project as well. Before I play that for you, I thought it would be nice just to maybe share a couple of short stories with you about uh, how I met Salah in the first place and some of the conversations that we had and the stuff that we got up to in those three years that we knew each other. The very first time that I met Salah, as I was saying, it was St. Patrick's Day 2018 and I was a part of a group visiting the Eider refugee camp and in particular paying a visit to the Ladji Centre and the Ladji Centre put on a lunch for us because it was St. Patrick's Day and put some uh, music and a bit of a dance show on for us up in the little community hall that they have upstairs in the Ladji Centre and during the lunch I just happened to be sitting beside Salah and was chatting away to him and I've kind of mentioned this 
encounter a couple of times before this we event before when I was talking about how the Acti Palestine project got off the ground. But during my short stay there on the 17th of February 2018, I was really struck by the power of what the people at the Ladji Centre were doing for their communities. It's a grassroots cultural centre that provides opportunities for young people in the camp to learn traditional Palestinian music and dance. And they also have a media unit that has been recording life in the camp, including the regular incursions and attacks that the Israeli army make on the camp. The media unit is led by Mohammed Alaza, who was the guest on the podcast in episode 41, if you want to check that out. I remember distinctly that Mohammed was giving us a talk and telling us about the time when he was shot from nearly point-blank range, range with a rubber-coated bullet by an Israeli soldier as Mohammed was filming the Israeli army's illegal incursion into the camp. And at the time, I was sitting next to Daniel Butler, whose granny was Emma Groves, the very well-known international campaigner for the banning of plastic and rubber bullets after she was shot through her own kitchen window by a British soldier at near point blank range with a plastic bullet and lost both of her eyes in that attack. It was kind of from that point forward that it's, it was really clear that we have a lot of things in common with the Palestinians in terms of the struggle that we had come through and the tools of oppression that are being used against them and that were also used against Irish people in the not-so-distant past, like in this lifetime. And I was also very struck by the parallels that the Ladji Centre had with uh, a lot of the opportunities that were provided for the people who are around about the same age as me in West Belfast whenever we were growing up in terms of music and culture, education and sport. And I suppose the education is a really, really important one because you can really see the fruits of the labour of the generation that came before us that fought really hard to provide us with educational opportunities and placed a big emphasis on education in our communities for the people who are uh, now in their, I suppose, early 40s, 30s, 20s and uh, the people that are still coming through the the education system in West Belfast, and I'm thinking in particular of the school that I came through, Manskal Farsha, which was set up by a very small group of Irish language activists and volunteers, our mum and dad being two of them. The school was set up about five years before I got to it. I came out of Bunskal Fubla Farsha that was set up by another group of activists, in the early 70s on the Shaw's Road. That was the primary school I went to and by the time I was ready to go to secondary school, the secondary school, Manskal Farsha, was set up in Kultalan Magadamo Fake, which is a cultural centre on the Falls Road that was set up again by a group of dedicated activists that wanted to have a focal point for cultural activities on in on the Falls Road and in West Belfast for the people of Belfast and in particular for the young people of Belfast. So that's where 
our school was initially based along with and Cafe Glass, the wee cafe that was there from the very beginning, and Cafe Poli, the fourth policeman, the bookshop uh, that was being run and that's still being run out of the Calderan, selling Irish language books and handmade crafts. That's where the theatre was and still is, where Ashley and Drama were doing their plays, and later on, the professional theatre company Ashley Gare. That's where the there's an art gallery there. That's where we did our music lessons as well whenever we were kids. And it's a place that you can walk into at any time of the day outside of pandemic times and sit down and converse with your peers or the younger generation or the older generation in Irish. And really, the time that I spent in the Calderland in school in Manskill Farsha and also in the restaurant there were really pivotal times for me especially times like I have a lot of memories of sitting around the dining table in the restaurant in the Calderland when I was very young and absorbing the conversations that were going on around me amongst the adults conversations about politics and culture and revolution and they had a big impact on me going forward and definitely shaped the person that I am today. And a lot of that is owed to the vision and the foresight that our parents' generation had to get all these things set up so that we would grow up as young adults and be able to carry that on, but also to have a belief in ourselves and a self-confidence in ourselves that just kind of give us this inner sense of security and a sense of agency over our own destiny, I suppose, if you want to put it that way. And that's ever more important. It's that, that's very important for anyone, as far as I can see, and a real gift to be given by the people who were looking after us whenever we were kids, our parents and other comrades within the community and friends and family members and mentors and coaches and teachers. But it's particularly important whenever a lot of the infrastructures that are around you are made to feel, made to, made to make you feel like you're not wanted. And that is very much what the British establishment wanted us to feel. And you can go back as far as you want, as far as the partition of the country and the statelet in the six counties that was in Stormont has, since that time, made people who came from mostly Catholic areas and mostly working-class Catholic areas like second-class citizens and have gone to extreme measures to put down people's sense of identity if they identified as being Irish or wanted to express their culture through their Irishness, through the language, through the music, through the sport and other elements of the culture. When everything around you is kind of saying denying you 
that sense of identity, then it's an even more precious gift, gift than ever that people had the foresight to uh, get things set up that would instill that sense of identity in us, not because of the fact that, uh, well, I suppose partly because of the fact that the culture is worth preserving in and of itself. It's an ancient culture. We have an ancient language, an ancient sport, and there's a lot of value that comes with all of those things, like countless value that comes with being a part of all of those things in uh, one measure or another, depending on your personal preference. Like Some people are more sporty and some people are more musical. So there's an inherent value in passing that along to the next generation because of the cultural side of it. But I think that the real value of it comes in the fact that we were raised with a self-confidence and a self-belief in ourselves that meant that uh, we didn't feel like we had to do anything at anybody else's expense to express ourselves or to just be ourselves, if that makes sense. I actually heard a really good interview on the News Talk radio station in Ireland last Thursday with Joe Brawley. Kieran Cuddy was doing a long-form interview with him. It's called the Thursday interview, I think. And he asked a lot of really commonly asked questions, questions that I'm asked uh, like on countless occasions more times than I could count. Kieran is from Kilkenny in the south of Ireland and was probably representing a fairly common uh, perspective with regards to how people in the 26 counties, the Republic of Ireland, viewed what was happening in the six counties in the north of Ireland throughout the period of conflict and even now a lot of people in the south of Ireland aren't uh, really that aware of what's happening and the backdrop of the events that are occurring in the north of Ireland even these days and in many respects it's not the fault of the general population in the south that that kind of lack of information exists there are many reasons for it not least the fact that um, a lot of the information that people got about what was happening in the six counties was based on the stories that were uh, presented in the English media or the free state media which had its own reasons for not being able to give a fair uh, kind of a coverage in two sides of the story during the period of conflict in the north. But I would really recommend going back and finding that. Actually, I'll put the link for that interview into the description for the podcast here. News just came through yesterday that the DUP leader, Arlene Foster, has stepped down. And many people might be thinking that that's quite a positive thing to happen considering the DUP's very conservative and right-wing stance on a lot of issues from marriage equality to abortion rights and their dogmatic stance against 
given the Irish language speaking community their right to an Irish language act which was agreed upon many moons ago as part of the assembly kind of Stormont set up and for inciting the violence that we've seen on the streets of Belfast in recent weeks through their incendiary incendiary what's the right word there like for their uh, <laughs> very provocative and f- the fighting talk that they were putting out there on their social media accounts and in the media over Brexit which the DUP, DUP, DUP actually voted for and so the resigning of Arlene Foster makes seem like a positive thing there but at the same time I am very weary and cautious about presenting her resignation in that light because there's a strong possibility that there is an even more conservative element of the DUP and an even more inflammatory faction within the DUP that could destabilise things in the North even further. And one thing that... Joe Brawley was asked about in that Thursday interview, which was a thought I thought was a really interesting point. Kieran was asking him about the the was there an insecurity within certain working class Protestant communities, namely the people who follow the DUP, I think, is who he was referring to, like uh, many of the young people that were seen out in the streets as well, rioting in recent weeks because of the fact that historically that there were a lot of industries in Belfast and in the north in general that would only employ Protestants and therefore much more working class Protestants were sort of more sure of a job for life and that there wasn't a big of an emphasis placed on education within those communities and there may be an element of truth to that it's very hard for me to say that but I know firsthand of the importance that the importance that was placed on education within our communities and I can speak uh, fairly clearly on the fact that we how much we've benefited from that like my life was changed drastically as was the life of my brothers and a lot of my friends because of the educational opportunities that we were afforded and the educational opportunities that we fought really hard for as well and I think that, that Joe was fairly in agreement with Kieran when he made that assessment about the fact that there were much more kind of jobs for life in the big industries such as Harlan and Wolf and Shorts and Bushmills up in County Antrim who were employing almost exclusively a Protestant workforce. But there's another very important point that came to mind there when I was thinking about that and when you look, when you go all the way back to the partition of the country in the early 1920s, the government installment was formed on a very sectarian kind of a platform. It was, as was stated, a Protestant state for a Protestant people, which is very similar to the rhetoric that you hear from the Israeli authorities these days where they're building a Jewish state for a Jewish people and that's another 
parallel that we have with the situation that's currently going on in Palestine. But if you take that Stormont government that was legislating and messing with electoral boundaries so that Catholics would suffer and that the vast majority of the power was in the hands of the Protestant ruling class and that impacted employment levels, it impacted housing, educational opportunities and poverty in general, uh, general prosperity in people's lives. From the very founding of the six, the state and the six counties, and that obviously is never going to end well. And come the late sixties, when the civil rights movement was starting to gather pace, and Catholics were starting to demand equal treatment in the eyes of the government and the eyes of the law, and equal opportunities for a prosperous life, which is a fairly straightforward thing to campaign for, a fairly straightforward thing to expect. The government instalment took this as a threat and just as we're seeing in the current political climate in the north with the way that the DUP were inflaming the situation and making it out like Protestant people's identity was being threatened by Irishness and the trouble that that caused in recent weeks that was going on and peaking in the late 1960s uh, whenever like the most obvious example and one that a lot of people may be already familiar with is the burning of Bombay Street when a mob of loyalists accompanied by people who were in the police service came into a small residential street on the Lower Falls Road and burnt out every single house in it and that was on the foot of the same kind of rhetoric and inflammatory language that the DUP are using today, stoking up sectarian hatred. And I suppose that the reflection that I'm kind of making about that is that when political parties and people who are in positions of leadership within their communities are making it out that their identity is at the expense of another section of the community and that their identity is threatened by another section of the community's expression of their own culture, it's really never going to end well. And ultimately, that's going to be the undoing of the abuse of power. The fact that the power was taken by force and at the expense of another section of the community or uh, people from of a different religion or from a different background. That's what's happening now in the north. As you can see, the DUP are losing their grip on the power that they have had for many decades in the north and that's ultimately going to be the undoing of the Israeli 
project in Palestine as well. It's just such a pity that we have to go through all of these years of bloodshed and conflict and war and pain and heartbreak to get to the point where equality and human rights are allowed to prevail over greed and brutality. Bearing that in mind, I think it really highlights the importance of having a wide perspective of the various forms that struggle can take. I remember one time, it must have been about 10 years ago or something like that. It could have been actually the 30-year anniversary of the hunger strikes and Shana Bratnock, who was the guest on the podcast here in episode 34, was giving a talk in a community centre in uh, Granabraher in Cork. It was near where I was living at the time and I went down to, to hear him talking and had a good chat with him afterwards. But the during the talk, he made the point that people can have a very romantic view of armed conflict. So we're talking 10 years ago, which was 2011. The armed struggle in the North had long ceased by that stage. And I think the point that he was making there was that you can have a very romantic view of armed struggle and being on the front line with your armalite and giving it to the Brits. But now that the armed struggle had come to a conclusion that it doesn't mean that the struggle is over. It just means that it's taken a different form. And it could be that certain people are drawn to uh, politics as their expression of struggle and other people channel their expression of struggle through culture and language or sport and doing something positive for their communities that have been long oppressed and I really got that sense from Salah as well from the work that he has been involved in in the Laji Centre and the founding of the Laji Centre and the emphasis that they place on cultural, mental, physical and overall well-being in amongst the young people in the camp and everyone who comes into the Laji Centre. So having got that sense and ended up sitting next to Salah when we were having our wee lunch, myself and another one of our group, Colin Radford, asked Salah if he would be up for meeting us later on in the week outside of the organised activities that we had planned for the group and he came and picked us up at the place that we were staying in, in Bethlehem and we went into a wee bar kind of cafe in the old city of Bethlehem and we had a good chat there about politics and the situation in Palestine and the situation in Ireland and the historical parallels and also discussed some of the differences. Also, when we were leaving that wee cafe, Salah told us about the, the time that he spent in the Church of the Nativity in 2002 under siege by the Israeli army for 40 days. And I'll add a couple of links to that into the description of the episode here. They had just set up the Ladsy Centre just before that kicked off and then Salah found himself in there with his comrades 
under siege and taken Israeli sniper fire for 40 days. Many were in there wounded and dead and uh, had very little in the way of food to sustain themselves. It's well worth uh, checking that out because uh, it's something that whenever I was in Bethlehem, I was so surprised walking down into the Church of the Nativity where Jesus was born and seeing the massive queues of tourists, like the queue now could have been 60 metres long or something like that to get into the wee place where they say that Jesus was born. But there isn't a single piece of acknowledgement of the siege that was laid there by the Israeli army during the Second Intifada. There's nothing to mark it except for Salah was able to show us some of the bullet holes in the columns within the Church of the Nativity. So if you ever do find yourself there in Bethlehem, in the Church of the Nativity, look for the bullet holes and go and find out about the siege. It's mad the way that that has kind of been papered over and it's as if it never happened. And maybe that's what many of the people who go there on religious pilgrimages want. Anyway, after that, we went around to loads of different shops looking for some Teba beer, which is a Palestinian beer. We eventually located some of them and bought them along with a wee bag of nuts and went up to a hill overlooking Bethlehem. We could see the apartheid wall, we could see refugee camps, we could see the illegal settlements that were built and being built still from the place that we were sitting and we kind of just had a nice chat about our lives on a more personal level when we were up there. That really reminded me up there when I was sitting on that hill with Collie and Salah about the view from Cave Hill or the view from Davis Mountain in Belfast. When you walk up there, you look down and you can see how small Belfast is. You can see the pace line that separates the communities of West Belfast in different parts. And you used to be able to see a lot of the army installations that were there, and there are not so many of them there anymore, even though you can see some of the heavy fortifications that are still there and that the PSNI use as their barracks. And just looking down and thinking how small Belfast is from that point of view, from that vantage point up high on a hill and the amount of destruction and heartbreak that was going on down in amongst the communities. And that was a very similar kind of a feeling that I had when I was sitting up on the hill with Sal and Collie looking down, except that there everything is happening before your eyes these days. The settlements are still being built the wall is still being expanded. There's checkpoints and watchtowers all over the place and the Israeli army are really making life um, as difficult as possible for the Palestinian people. And it was with all that kind of backdrop that the Akli Palestine project came to life and it was really just a coming together of our thoughts and um, our efforts to try and make a positive contribution to the struggle that the Palestinians are currently engaged in. Interestingly enough, that night, 
myself and Collie were talking to Salah about a protest that we were thinking about going to that has a reputation for turning into a bit of a riot. I think it's on every week. And it's uh, attended by a lot of international visitors to Palestine. And Salah's point of view on it was that if we were to go to that protest, our contribution to the Palestinian struggle would be basically over before it even got started because we would likely be photographed at the protest and then deported when we got to the airport on the way home and not allowed back for 10 years. And I think that was really a sign of Salah's leadership on that time and also quite a parallel with the talk that Shana Brannock was given in Cork in 2011 when he was saying that it's not always about going on to the front line and sticking it to the enemy in a kind of a violent way and that a lot of the time the most effective form of struggle can be uh, more subtle than that or more discreet or in a way it can be more powerful by doing something else I suppose that's the main point there is that you look at the various possibilities and the various avenues for struggle and you pick the one that's going to have the biggest impact and for us as international friends of Palestine the biggest impact that we can have to contribute positively to the struggle of the Palestinians is to initially go there and hear people's stories and see what's happening there and bring those stories back to our friends and family and share them around as much as we can. Actually, if you're listening to this and considering what you might be able to do to help the Palestinian cause, one of the most powerful and effective ways to send a message to Israel that what they're doing is wrong on many many levels and to send a message of support to the Palestinians is to engage in the BDS campaign boycott divestment and sanctions and to boycott Israeli products and services and especially products that have come from settlements from illegal settlements that have been built on Palestinian land you can get a full list of all of the companies that are on the boycott list on the IPSC website which I'll link in the description of this episode on a personal level it was good that we were able to get involved in the Ackley Palestine project and do something that was going to be useful for the community at Ada and that was led by the people who are going to be using the space that we've developed over there it's really an exercise in camaraderie brotherhood and sisterhood and an act of friendship rather than an act of charity. Funny enough, another short reflection on how the connection with the Lodgy Centre became so strong and so profound over quite a short space of time whenever I was over there visiting in 2018, early 2018. It reminded me of the time whenever I was in Manskalfarsha in the Calderland on the Falls Road 11, 12, 13 years of age and international visitors to 
Belfast would come and call to all of the classes in Manskill Farsta or College de Farsta as it's known today and they would call around and have a little chat with the classes and I can remember friends from the Basque country and even America and South Africa calling to our classroom and even though we had that inner sense of self-confidence that was being nurtured by our teachers and our parents and the older generation it was in hindsight a very special experience to see people coming in from the outside and being given a kind of recognition that they seen us and the struggle that we were on that we were engaged in and supported it and endorsed it and gave us encouragement in that struggle and in a way I kind of felt like it was coming full circle now that I was in Palestine and in a position to stand in solidarity with our brothers and sisters over there. Salah had many, many friends in Palestine and all over the world and he's going to be very dearly missed by his family and all of the people that knew him. He had a massive impact on me personally and on a lot of other people that I've spoken to and a lot of other people that I've never met before who have seen posting memories and reflections about him on social media over the course of the last two weeks. Salah had an enormous impact on the younger generation of Palestinians, especially those that are coming through the Lazi Centre, those that are growing up in the Ida refugee camp and ultimately Salah's influencer is going to have a positive impact on the future of Palestine, the Palestinian struggle and ultimately Palestinian freedom from the oppression of the Israeli army and the Israeli government and the Israeli project in general. The last time that I seen Salah was right beside Checkpoint 300 in Bethlehem. We had just gone around to the outer refugee camp to a falafel shop and brought some falafels back to our wee group into the apartment and we had breakfast together just before we left on the 28th or the 27th of February and we had a big hug not knowing that that was going to be the last time that we were going to see each other that period of time that we spent in Palestine in February 2020 we covered a lot of ground and did a lot of things one really pleasant memory that I have is when we went up to Jericho to the Mount of Temptations it's an ancient monastery that's carved into the side of a hill there's actually a cable car that goes up to it but we were able to drive a good bit up the hill Salah knew the way up and there was a few of us just kind of sitting on the steps to the kind of on the steep incline up to the monastery and I had a tin whistle in my bag and whipped it out and started playing a couple of tunes and there's a steady stream of pilgrims going up and down the steps to go and see the monastery and Salah <laughs> took my hat 
and stuck it down on the ground and started demanding that people pay <laughs> and people started throwing coins into the hat it was pretty funny anyway if the last seven or eight months has taught me anything it's that people who have passed on live through their family and their friends and their comrades and the people that they knew when they were here with us and I know that Salah is going to be living through a lot of people in very positive ways for generations to come for me that's going to take the form of staying in touch with our friends and comrades in Palestine and helping to develop the Akli Palestine project in Salah's honour and doing it in a way that I think he would be happy with whenever we were over there and at the opening day of the Akli Palestine gym back in February 2020 I was given just a couple of words at the opening event and I can remember the thought coming into my head that the group of us, the group of six that went over there to install the gym and who had been involved in the fundraising and all the work beforehand had come across to Palestine representing our family and our friends from Ireland and that we were leaving Palestine representing our friends and people who we cared very deeply for in Palestine and I think that I probably speak on behalf of everyone who's been involved in the Ackley Palestine project that we'll continue to represent our friends and comrades in Palestine and in particular to develop the project and keep Salah very close to our hearts and fresh in our memories as we do so. From a personal point of view and also on behalf of the rest of the crew that were over in Palestine in February last year I do want to extend our deepest, deepest sympathies to Salah's family and solidarity with his friends and his comrades in Palestine and to any of Salah's friends and comrades all over the world who might be listening to this. I'm going to play as the chat that me and Salah recorded on the 4th of December 2019. And just before I stick it on, I thought it might be nice to play a wee tune on the flute in memory of Salah and as an opportunity to reflect on our friendship with Salah, our connection with him, our connection with the people of Palestine and also if you're still listening to this you can use it as a time to reflect on whatever you want because it's been an incredibly difficult year for everyone everyone's been been affected by the pandemic in one way or another so I'll play this wee tune and then I'll stick on the chat that was recorded in the back room of Ackley in Cork on the 4th of December 2019 
from a village called Ajur. Um, uh, really, I'm here like an island. I'm uh, like just came last week um, for like just one week or so. I'm will back uh, tomorrow. Um, the purpose of my trip, like first, like to build links and bridge between Palestinian people and Irish people here, and uh, to thanks uh, you, Anla. It's because uh, also you start like very very a huge step between either refugee camp and uh, your business. Uh, especially that gym, because uh, now people in Ida camp they are waiting to open this Irish Palestinian gym in Ida refugee camp, and this is like one of the big issue for us as a Palestinian to see uh, our friend in Ireland starting something uh, helpful for our new generation, for our women, for our girls, for our children uh, in Laji Center, and Laji Center is one of the organization as a charity. We work for uh, volunteer to help the new generation in either refugee camp, and that will be helpful uh, for us, like to start the relation uh, between the people uh, in Ireland and Palestine, and that's also the donation what uh, we uh, what you raised uh, since uh, your visit in Palestine two years ago. That is a big issue for us because that money is coming from the heart of the people. That money is uh, coming to support the people from people to people. And that also will bring something forever to uh, stay the, the, the situation between uh, Ida and Ireland. Uh, it will be strong and maybe we'll do that in another refugee camp in the future. Or we can encourage other people to do the same or the similar project in, in Palestine. So uh, my trip also to Ireland this year because we want also to come in 2020 next year to bring the Laji children, uh, the music, the media and the dancer uh, to come to uh, different places in Ireland to, because like we want like to tell the people our stories, our life and our uh, struggle in either Fuji camp. Why do you think there's such a strong connection between Ireland and Palestine? You know, because we we uh, we suffer the same uh, situation. Uh, the Palestinian people they still under occupation, and the Irish people also they stay a hundred years under occupation also. And we feel we are the same uh, struggle. We feel the same people. We feel like we know both how much is important to be free and to get the freedom and to love the land and to love our countries. Uh, so. Most of the time, like when we welcome Irish people, we feel they are part of our uh, bodies and part of our struggle, part of, and they give us like a lot of support. Uh, that's mean. It's not the money support. I mean, it's like the the the, the power and the ideas how we stay strong and how they are smiling with with us, how they are welcome uh, us like when we are here because like we. Uh, came in 2014 to Ireland and uh, this has given us a lot of hope like we still have uh, good people they want like to to ad adopt us and they want like to welcome us and they give us a lot of hope and they told us uh, most of the Irish people I met ever they told me will one day you will win so that's it's uh, I'm not heard that from others most of the time from the Irish people so we, we are suffering the same problems and how did the Lazi Center start at the beginning? You know, Lazi Center started in the beginning in 2000, 2001 as a group of youth. Uh, we start our activities in the street without any money. 
Um, because like we believe, we want to build uh, a new generation who can decide and choose and uh, to be free and uh, to take care of the children, especially in a refugee camp, because as children grow up in a refugee camp, they have nothing. You know, their homes is really crowded, their schools is crowded, the camp is crowded. And because uh, Ida camp is separated by the wall, and uh, we have, you know, we, we feel like we are in, in jail in Ida refugee camp. And that's, you know, we start to at least like to give some space for the children. Uh, like most of our activities we do uh, since when we start until now, we help a lot of children, we help a lot of students, we help a lot of mothers. Now, our programs at Lajee Center, we have a lot of units. We have the football, we have uh, the media, we have the health program, we have the library. Uh, it's like a lot of uh, work at Lajee Center. And we, because we miss most of these services in Aydar Fujikam, that's why we start our idea. Because, you know, our school, they do nothing in the school. You don't have, like, art, they don't have sport, you don't have uh, trauma, things. Uh, so that's why we start, because, you know, we miss most of the need of our new generation in Aydar Fujikam. That's why, as a group of youth, because we miss most of these things, like to, to have, like, a gym as, like, you, the idea now, it would be a dream for our children to have it at either refugee camp to go for at least for space for free, uh, because you know not most of the children have the money to go. So we don't want like as as refugees all, all the time to divide the refugee from who rich and poor, because most of them they need services, and compared to the. United Nations services since the camp start, they not offer any garden or any play, playground or any place for children to play. So that's us as a group of youth in Leji Center. In 2000-2001, we start uh, the, the idea and we reach now a lot of things in either Fuji camp. We build bridges, we uh, travel uh, a lot to different countries, we host hundreds of internationals uh, and we now, uh, we know like brothers and sisters and family and homes over the world. And that's also, it's uh, give us a hope. We still have people stand behind us. And what what role does the UN play within the camp? You know, UN, since Oslo, since the agreement between the Palestinians and Israelis, the, uh, you know, the UNRWA, they used to have like much services before, before Oslo. Like uh, the education the health program, the cleaner, the it's like a lot of services. But since Oslo till now, they start like to cut their services. They divide the people in the refugee camp to different levels. So if you are like sometime you work, you will not get like services. Uh, now uh, the school is very poor school compared to the past. Uh, now the budget of the United Nations and especially last year when. Uh, uh, Obama's boycott. Uh, uh, sorry, that when Trump is boycott uh, the the UNRWA because like the majority of the donors it used to be United States, but after Trump now they boycott the the, the services of UNRWA. So that's mean also now we don't have much services in the refugee camps, and also the Palestinian Authority they not involved in refugee camp. They keep the refugee services to the United Nations. So that's also its mass. So then. We, we found ourselves as a refugee, we don't have like a father or, you know, who will take care of us. So that's why 
as like uh, organization in, in, in Lazy Center, we take care of the people through our activities, through our vision, through our education. And, you know, like to, to bring like children uh, to Ireland or like when they saw like people in, from Ireland to come to Ida and build gym for them, that's for them, it's, uh, it's a big issue. It's for them, it's like, it's not just the space or the idea. It's like how people care of them. And this is the main issue. Uh, they feel like they still have people who thinking about the Palestinian, about the victims. Because uh, sometimes, you know, you, you as a refugee, you, you found yourself like sometime under the attack of the Israeli soldier, under the tear gas, they kill people, they arrested people. Uh, so sometimes we feel no one is going to take care of us. But when we found friend now, like the new generation in Laji Center or in Aydakam, now they know a lot of names in different country. Uh, they feel like uh, they have now brothers and sisters and families in other countries. And what, what is life like uh, week to week in the camp at the minute? You know, the life in the camp, you know, uh, we don't trust the future because uh, who knows what is going in the next hour. Uh, in the refugee camp, sometimes uh, you will see like each hour is a different hour than before. Uh, sometimes the Israelis is just like attack the camp, they throw tear gas without any reason. Uh, the life in the refugee camp, it's uh, in, in uh, compared like to live, we don't have enough water sometimes for showers, for uh, doing like our life, for the need of the life. Uh, the electricity in winter sometimes, uh, you can't read your book because it's really uh, mass and we don't have like very strong electricity in the refugee camp. Uh, the, 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 the services of the United Nations, it's really mass. So that's mean the life under occupation in a refugee camp in, in, in after 72 years after the catastrophe, we still like a refugee in a refugee camp, just like, you know, it's what's has changed. Like we start from tent, now we have like crowded rooms. Uh, we have like some homes in the refugee camps, some rooms, uh, you can't use it, you need to use the, the, the light 24 hours. Uh, the, the schools, it's very crowded. The, we don't have a, a, a good preschools in, in Ida camp, that's why we think in Laji Center to start like a preschool in the future. Uh, the healthcare, like sometimes, you know, people, uh, they just wait sometime like for uh, the, the help of the United Nations or the Palestinian uh, Authority to do their surgery and sometimes people die without to know uh, the reason because they don't have money sometimes to go to the private doctors. Uh, so we still strong. We still uh, think like we will uh, have a hope one day. Uh, we will have something one day. Uh, that's why we take care of our education and we build links between the people uh, in Palestine and outside. And can you tell the difference that some of the things that the Laji Centre has done has made to the like children who come through the system there? You know, it's like it's a big, a big change in, in either refugee camps, especially through Laji services. Uh, now you can hear music when you walk in the camp because, like, we teach a lot of children music. Uh, you can see, like, uh, uh, children in Aida refugee camp, they have uh, a Celtic Palestinian uh, T-shirt. Uh, that's, uh, you can see that in the street, like, how we build our, uh, the relation between the uh, 
uh, Green Brigades and Laji uh, children. You can see children in the camp with international friends, just like they walk together, because that's also, it's helped the children when they go to the school or when the soldier in the camp, they can walk with them. Uh, it's a lot of change, uh, a lot of, uh, th now they have like space in, in, in Ida camp. Uh, they have a garden, they have a soccer field. Uh, we used like to play in the street all our life. Laji Center is build a soccer field for them. Uh, they build a garden for the children, women, people. Now we have a hundred patients. Uh, our community health uh, worker, they visit them in their homes. They do like an open activities for them. Uh, it's not just like children, children, women, old people. Uh, also, we, we take care of the international who's come to Palestine. We host them in our homes, and we believe they do a lot for our children. They work with them, they help them, they do a lot of things. And what are the conditions like in the Ada camp compared to some of the other refugee camps that are, say, in and around the area? You know, it's like you, we all, the Palestinian people, we are under occupation. But like sometimes when you live close to the wall and you can just like see from your eyes the wall from two or three th sides around your home and you see like watch uh, military towers, they flashing in the night time the flash and sometimes you just like wake up and the flash at your home like lights of lights all the time. So that's scaring the children. Uh, they practice, the Israeli soldiers, they practice sometimes in our camp. They train the soldiers how they shoot, how they kill, how they arrested. So we we feel like compared to the other camps, uh, like some camps in the refugee camp, they are really suffering a lot because they're still under occupation. Uh, also because we, we, we live around the apartheid wall in either refugee camp, that's also, it's difficult because you don't know when the bullet, the life bullet, the, the tear gas is coming through your window. Um, myself, like I have four children, uh, sometimes if they want to go from the bedroom downstairs to take like some water or to go to the fridge, they're afraid because uh, they want to wake me up because they thought maybe the soldiers is in the first floor. Uh, that's it's happened uh, many times because the soldier now they when they uh, attack our home or when they come in, so they use like a, a, a silent bomb, like they enter your your room without to know. So they use like most of these weapons, most of these materials, uh, to test it and trying to 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 see how it's work in, when they invade the others. So uh, it's really difficult uh, for the new generation. Uh, it's for our people. Uh, Sometimes you know if you want like to invite people at at the camp, it's really difficult. So uh, I'm, I'm see the children life. It's really difficult. Uh, women also life is difficult. You know, sometimes if you want like to, to sleep with your wife or uh, in summer, you know, you need like sometimes our women, they cover their hair when they sleep because sometimes soldiers just come in to their bedroom. So, you know, some Muslim religion, they don't want like to show their hairs to the others. So then just suddenly you see the soldier at your home. Uh, two weeks ago, like they arrested one of my neighbor. Uh, he's a child, 14 years old. So my daughter, they wake, wake up. They cry. I told them, why you are crying? They said, uh, our brother is four years. Maybe after six, seven years, he will be in jail. Uh, so sometimes, you know, you want to take care of yourself. You want to think about yourself. But how much you take care of yourself, you don't know when you are killed or when you are arrested or when you are injured. Because like some children, they killed in Ida camp when they go back to school. When, or when they go to the school. Uh, some children, they just arrested for no reason when they, when they play football. 
in the in the soccer field. Uh, some uh, you know it's like in, in indoor, like in their home. Some some children is killed. Yeah, we we know like a lot of people. They are yeah, mothers is killed one day, hug their children, in either refugee camp. So it's really difficult to live safe uh, under the uh, occupation, because also we are close to the military area and with the with the apartheid wall. And that's towers, you know, it's not like just they build a wall and they not watching us. They're watching us 24 hours. Mm-hmm. And these soldiers, they want some time, like if you make a party, and it's happened sometime, if you, they know you are in a party in your home and they can watch that, they just shooting tear gas or rubber bullets to you. So just they want to destroy our life. Mm-hmm. You mentioned earlier that uh, uh, a lot of Palestinians have a very strong connection with the land yeah. and when you walk around the camp you see some houses that have parts of the plants and trees that yes. they took from the original yeah. um, homes. Can you talk a little bit about how um, that has affected people because the camp is very cramped and there, there's not a lot of like open land around the camp. Yeah. You know, we use <coughs> sorry, we used like to live in, in Ida camp, like close to like uh, very very nice area. It's called uh, Niglesia. It's the name. It's come from like one of the uh, English women. She used to live before '48 in that land. Uh, that land is used to be like as a park for our children. That's olive trees, land, and also most of the Palestinian people before '48. Uh, the majority of them, like 77% of the Palestinians, they are farmers. So we plant trees when we came to, to Aydakam. Like, it used to be a tent and surround the tent, like grapes, figs, and trees, and green. I remember, like, 30 years, oh, 30 years ago, when you look to the camp, you see just a garden, because people love to see green, love to see uh, trees. Because, like, you know, uh, we, we sometimes as flower, as people as as trees, uh, you know, because we want to take care of it. So that's why uh, sometimes people once like to have space and have a green area, but like compared to live uh, in, in a crowded area, so it's no more trees, no more uh, like land in the camp. So we use like to help people in the camp to build to roof gardens and their to roof. But sometimes, you know, we don't have enough space in our roof because we put water tank because we save the water in our water tanks in our roof so it's no more space so we help more than 60-70 families to give them like greenhouses and that's also to help the committee to share together what they want to plant it's help them to involve to have like a good relation together because we give them like training how and what they can plant uh, and we still have like uh, trees and grapes, uh, trees, uh, since like people when they start the camp. And um, like if you go to the camp and you, you, you remember maybe that, it's one of the homes they keep like a small garden in the bedroom and they take the, the grapes tree to, to, the, to the top of the roof. So that's mean they, they care, they take care of the trees as what they take to uh, care of their children. So, and that's what, what's the idea of our people to take care of the trees because trees also it's as human you need to take care of it so we love trees we love green we love uh, that's sometimes you know when we travel with our children when they saw islands green uh, they love it they want to stay sometime because uh, that's what they miss in Palestine because we don't have enough water to drink to wet our olive 
threes or our threes. I remember one time last year we were in the bus going somewhere. I can't remember where we were going, but you pointed out an olive tree that used to be at the camp. Yes, that's that's in, in the entry of uh, one of the settlement. It's called uh, Maladumim settlement. That's in the way to Jericho or Ramallah. <coughs> uh, that's three. We remember we used to play under that tree, and that tree it's the, the the it's look special because we use like to throw stones to the tree, and like the tree is stand on the tree, like they have like many holes in it. So we remember that trees, and when we bust throw, uh, oh that tree is it used to be where they build the wall in Ida camp. So they store it and they plant it in the entry of the uh, settlement. You know they they store thousands and thousands of trees with that. Trees, it used to be planted in the Romanian time. That's 2,000 years ago. So that's why sometimes Bethlehem area is like the oil in Bethlehem area. That's one of the expensive oil ever. Because that's it's a holy, we call it a holy oil. And that's also, uh, that trees is 2,000 years. So uh, that tree, I remember that. I'm, I'm, I feel sorry, like sometimes when I'm, I'm go there, and to see that trees now making the settlement nice because they want like to show the people this settlement it's built hundred of years. So that's is the the vision of the Israeli settlers like when they stole it from our land and just like plant it in the, in the settlement. So it's kind of a propaganda to take the tree that was in the camp for like 2,000 years and put it outside the settlement and say the settlement has been yes. here for a long time? Yes, yeah. They want, you know, they teach their children, uh, we plant that tree. Our fathers, they planted that tree because like it's in their garden now. It's look like, you know, because the olive trees, if you move from place to place, it can grow up, you know. And they stole it because like when they build the wall around all West Bank, they store a lot of trees, a lot of uh, stones, a lot of... Uh, you know, they destroy old houses and they take the stones from these old houses and they build new uh, old houses in their settlement. Uh, you know, they change sometimes uh, in Hebron area. They When they stolen our homes from in Hebron area, just they take one of the old stone and they put like some Hebrew uh, words in it. And like people say, oh, from where that stones? You know, they just like take it from another old house from Hebron area and just they build it in the top of the new uh, settlement uh, houses so that's also it's like kind of propaganda they want to show their children and the media, the media oh settlers they are from many years here what's the atmosphere like there at the minute I seen just in the news yesterday or today that the um, Israelis want to build a settlement on the market in Hebron you know, it's like uh, all the time, you know, uh, the settlement, sorry to say that, the settlement, it's grow all the time. Uh, after Oslo, you know, after 1993, uh, we used to have, uh, it's about like, you know, uh, it's less than 100 uh, settlement in West Bank. Now we have more than 500 settlement. They use the peace and the negotiation between the Palestinian Authority and uh, uh, Israel like to say, oh, we are looking for peace for two states, one state in Israel in the Green Line and one state in West Bank. But this is not true because like they build uh, settlement all the time. They not stop to build in West Bank. Uh, every day they have a new uh, building in, in the settlement in Hebron area, in Nablus, in Bethlehem. Now in Bethlehem area, like as a Palestinian, if we want like to live and to buy a piece of land, 
it's more expensive than anywhere because like we don't have more land because we are not allowed to build in area C and this area C is the majority of where is the settlement in West Bank. So they build in area C because, and also they stolen our water from area C and they take most of our land in area C. We as a Palestinian, we are not allowed to use area C now. Uh, some farmers, if they want to dig and to build a system for the water, they come and they destroy it. You need permission from the Israeli side. But settlement, they can build what they want. Settlers, they can do what they want. Uh, they want to build now in middle of Hebron, another settlement. They want to build in, in Bethlehem, another uh, settlement. So all the time, just like, you know, building settle, settlement in, in West Bank. So during the last intifada, were you working as a journalist at the time? Yes. Yeah, and how, how was that? Uh, and the second father I work as a journalist because I'm, I'm uh, used to study journalists, but I'm uh, really uh, found it's difficult that because I'm not like have uh, permission to move freely in West Bank or to Jerusalem. Um, uh, I'm still like involved with like some media uh, stuff, like uh, you know printing like different books, different stories about like telling the stories of our people in, in Idra Fujika because uh, to be a journalist, to be honest with you, in Palestine now. It's really difficult because you need like to follow one of the the the, uh, the political part. I'm I'm not like follow any, any one of these now. I'm uh, work as a Palestinian, uh, so I'm also help uh, Laji uh, Center since Laji start like to create a lot of uh, media stuff and a lot of uh, uh, publications. I'm also now I'm uh, a lawyer. I'm uh, finished my master degree uh, soon, and I'm working in the court also to defend about like the children and these things. And what's what is that like at the minute? Are a lot of children are in court at the minute? Yeah, it's a lot of children. They we have like in West Bank maybe more than two hundred children under eighteen. They are still in jail, and you know the majority of our children either come they are arrested when they are children. You know they spend like years and years we need like to work with them for like how the the, the this affect their life their future uh, they have like trauma things they have like a lot of problem so that's fit to the children rights we need like to help them uh, how much we can at clergy center and what do you think is going to be um a possible way forward for the palestinians from here uh it's many things you know, it's like, you know, uh, I'm, I remember I met you two or three years ago and I told you about like my dream or what we what you can do as, as a person and you just back and you start like, you know, to promote Palestine uh, through like your your gym as, as a support, as, as like sport man, like who's like not involved in the political things. You, your job is different than others. But through this uh, business, you, you start like to encourage the people and you do like fundraising, like you, maybe you will touch, uh, or just like you know, you know, you you uh, involve with like thousands of people who who want like to to support Palestine. After that, throw you. Uh, it's good, like you know, to uh, boycott Israel. Uh, this is like one of the big issue. Uh, it's good, like to encourage the people to come and to visit and to carry our stories and back home as what you do in, in your trip. Uh, it's good to host Palestinian people who wants to come and wants to study and wants to learn from the Irish people uh, how he can build his country, how he can take care of his life, how he can become uh, something uh, helpful for the future of Palestinian people. Do you think there could be another intifada? 
Um, myself, uh, I don't think this will be another intifada if the Palestinian Authority continue. Yani if the Palestinian uh, Authority in West Bank especially stopped and say we are not now a Palestinian Authority, I guess maybe this will be another intifada. But intifada under the Palestinian Authority, I don't think will be another intifada. Is that because the Palestinian Authority kind of work with the Israeli authorities? In a way? Uh, it's, you know, because uh, I don't, you know, Palestinian Authority, they, they are come through Oslo and they are have like agreement with the security, uh, Israeli security uh, branches and Israel, Palestinian authority security. So that's it will be, they, they have like some rules, they have like some things, they work together sometime about like a different issue. Uh, I guess uh, to 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 have like Palestinian Authority and uh, Intifada, we need to focus what kind of Intifada if we want, you know, because we don't want like to have like Intifada, like just go again with with like you know shooting to the settlers or shooting to the uh, uh, to do like bombs inside Israel. We need like to be smart because now the the media is like we're not controlling the media as the Zionists or as the Israelis. Uh, it's a big difference. Uh, for us, like to to teach the people when we want, like to go to demonstration, at least we need like thousand and thousand of people to go, not like a few hundred. So we need to educate the people how they can uh, ask for their rights. It's not just like start intifada and that's intifada. It will not reach anything. Just like we lose. <clears throat> so we need like to think in a, in a smart way. What kind of things we need, and where we go, and what we can achieve. So uh, now, as a Palestinian, if you ask like five Palestinian people, uh, each one he will answer a different question. So we need like to think: okay, if we want like one state or two state, uh, what is the uh, think of what we would think about which way we want to use uh, the violent or not violent? Uh, if that happened in the settlement, or we want to leave the Israeli people who live inside Israel out of that intifada. So we need to focus as a Palestinian what we want first. And that, and then we can create something new. But um, I'm not sure. One day it should be again intifada, like the second intifada. You know, we we feel like sometimes the intifada is not finished from the Israeli side. You know, they still attack us. They attack Gaza every two years, every six months. They arrested people from Ramallah. They destroy homes close to the Abu Mazen office in Ramallah. They uh, arrested every day, like between. 15 to 20 Palestinian people. Uh, in the jails, we have more than, in the Israel jails, we have more than 6,000 Palestinian uh, people. So it's it will be difficult, we'll say, the Intifada is finished. It's, you know, the, the, the struggle is continue. But as, like, you know, thousands of people involved in demonstrations, so we need, like, to focus in which way we want it. How do you personally choose which direction to... Um, put your efforts into with, with so many different options like obviously you're involved in the Laji Centre which is cultural and yeah. uh, community kind of based activities how do you choose to go in that direction? You know I choose that because I'm really frustrated from the political uh, parts in Palestine like Hamas Fatah BFLB these people uh, they are not like you know uh, they do not succeed about what's their vision how they start you know, let's say Fatah or Hamas or uh, Islamic Jihad or most of these people. You know, this is, it's, it's used to be like, you know, fighters, but like what they build on the ground, 
and sorry to say that nothing like the, the Palestinian Authority since Oslo, since 93 until now, they spend millions on what we have. Yani if you go to the uh, schools, they don't. We don't have a good schools. If you go to the hospitals, we don't have. If you walk in the in the street, we don't have a good streets. So what we need, we need like an, an, a part of the Palestinian leaders to think about like how we can build something stay forever. So we need like to choose like what, how how we choose at large, like how we we start like to think about what the need of the people. This is the issue, because we need to listen to the people, what they want. And now, with with our parliament in in, uh, in West Bank and Gaza, since 2007 we don't have election, and these people who's elected in 2006, until now they pay them. You know, they pay them three thousand five hundred dollar a month, and they do nothing. That's 126 people, and they are. They don't have any meeting in our parliament since 2007. That's mean 13 years ago. <clears throat> And why? Why we? They take money from us, from the people, because now the majority of the the income of the Palestinian Authority is from the people itself. Like 80 percent of the money, we pay it as our tax and our things. So we need we need to focus exactly. What we need as a Palestinian, if we need a political uh, part, who? And why and where? So we need to focus exactly what we need. I'm, I'm, I'm a person as I'm thinking about. Okay, let's think about like if we can rebuild BLO as the umbrella of the Palestinian people. That's fine, but I don't think we can build it. We need like to find a new part, a new political part to collect most of the Palestinian people together and decide what we need in the future. I get the impression whenever I was in the, at the camp and in the Lazi Centre that a lot of the work that you do is with kids. Do you feel like uh, do you feel confident in the next generation of uh, Palestinians that they're going to be able to like, continue and bring the cause further down the road? Sure. Yeah, that's that's what we build now. Like some of our new generation now, they are live out of the of, of Palestine. They they involve in other organization. They work in. A different country, uh, they lead the other program at large. Uh, we build a new generation, and that's what we need. Because, like you know, when you build the children, this is Palestine. This is not Hamas or Fatah. This is uh, Jerusalem. It's our capital. Uh, this is the refugee rights. This is uh, what you need to to be as a child. So it's good, like when you teach them what's the need of them. Uh, you know, because like sometimes you know people they not like choose the right curriculum about like what they want like to do. So most of our uh, uh, most of our goals at Lazy Center are like to ask the children, to ask the new generation what they want. Because we, you know, let's say if we want like, to start a gym in Idacam, and we have like 50 gym in the camp, so what what's a help? But when we don't have gym for 5,000 people and the majority of them children, so that should be a good idea for them like to be and uh, to to play and to build their their health. Because, like before, when you build your your country, you need to take care of yourself as as a person. So uh, that should be helpful, like for for the the children with Laji. Like we work very hard with them about to tell them choose what you want and take the direction of your life as what you want. Because we don't want to control them. We don't want like to them to be applied just like take our orders from us. No, 
which are the, and that's our logo, like to work together, to decide together, to choose a better future together. That's what we believe.